Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast, brought to you from the Silverstone 40th Anniversary event with special guest Claire Williams. Welcome to the Autosport Podcast, brought to you from Silverstone, where we are celebrating 40 years of Williams Grand Prix engineering with this most remarkable day. I haven't ever quite seen anything like it. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport. I'm joined by Stuart Codling of F1 Racing, who, like me, has been wandering around the garages, marvelling at all manner of historical Williamses. Their, Their heritage collection really is spectacular these days. So, for those listening, can you give people a bit of a feel of the day, Codders, about what this is all about? Well, I walked into the garage and once I'd managed to gently elbow my way past all the liggers who were hanging around the uh, hospitality zone and drinking champagne at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, um, the, the, the vista opened up and literally you begin at one end of this garage with the ex-Patrick Nev March 761 that uh, was the first Williams in its current incarnation. Of course, entry. it's often forgotten that to get the team up and running, they had to have a customer car for 77 for the for the first year. Yeah, and the cars are laid out chronologically from there, and they 
it is basically a line of absolute megas until you kind of get to uh, the uh, some of the 2000s, I suppose. But um, uh, all the way along to the, the the present car with the Martini livery, and it is just really amazing to wander along and and look at the progression between the cars. So uh, earlier on, I was looking. I'd just spoken to the owner of of the March, and I was looking at details like the front suspension with its coilover shocks sitting in the airflow and uh, generally looking like it was the, uh, the the touring car equivalent of a single seater and next to it is the um, FW06 the, the the first proper Williams as it were so of course they used the designation for the old Williams team Frank Williams racing yeah. cars just, just to confuse everyone of, 40 years yeah. down the line <laughs> I won't get into too much detail about <laughs> the lineage let's not, let's of, not of go Williams, into poly toys and so that sort of carry thing carry on to Tommaso to Tommaso to yes um and it's just fascinating to not just look at the beautiful engineering details on these cars. And there's a few curios as well. There's the six-wheel test car. Um, there's uh, I had a, a good chat to Martin Brundle who went out on it today. And he just said oh. it had so much grip, so much traction, obviously, ground effect as well. The extra the extra axle at the rear. So you've got, unlike the the Tyrrell, the six-wheel Tyrrell, of course, raced and won the, won the Swedish Grand Prix. This car's got its four wheels at the back. At the back so yeah. this is about traction rather than about front end yeah i I had the minimizing drag i should and minimizing drag i I had the privilege of speaking to sir patrick head earlier and he said if i can adopt the patrick head voice watch your levels ed well i was expecting that it wouldn't turn around corners but actually almost unprecedented it was really rather agile the problem was it was a hundred kilos overweight and looking at it in detail, I think we would only have been able to take 80 out of it. So actually, it was rather a blessing when the FAA banned it. <laughs> I've got to say, for those listening, you've rather missed out by not seeing the facial expressions, that the contortions and the effort that went into, <laughs> into Codders in doing that rather excellent uh, excellent impression. I did have to turn him down a bit as well to make sure it didn't uh, distort, distort things. But that's, that's a feel for the kind of history you've got. Not only have you got all these cars, but... Just about everybody who's ever driven a Williams. I ran into Nico Rosberg, Pastor Maldonado, yeah. Keki and Rosberg Antonio was around. Pizzoni is here. Pizzoni, Ricardo Patrese. The list is almost endless. Nigel Mansell. Nigel Mansell, who's brought Roseanne. So I wasn't quite sure what the etiquette of doorstepping Nigel uh, <laughs> would be. Cause for Mrs. Mrs. Mansell, uh, looking a little bit bemused by the whole thing. Oh, Nigel will be in his element talking about all this, though, won't he? Of course, one of the star attractions is the Williams Renault FW14B that won the 1992 World Championship. Well, he won the World Championship. In. You have got the video of it doing... Um, what, what, what's that thing that American custom car people do with the pneumatic suspension where they like to make the car bounce? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just basically cleaning out the hydraulic system and everything, just making sure it's all, it all works. I had a bit of a chat to Paddy Lowe earlier. He was enjoying seeing it. Of course, Paddy Lowe, who's now the technical supremo at Williams, who was technical supremo at Mercedes, who was the technical supremo at McLaren. Before that, he was at Williams was and at the Williams. active project. He came in through the electronics side. And so I think he was rather, he was rather enjoying seeing it. A little bit of pride there. And he was ta- I was talking to him about some of the bits he developed for it and the control systems that he basically had to create from scratch. Obviously, you see some of the stuff that's high tech for 1992, which is rather crude, but still amazing. It's fantastic to see up close the car doing that. I'd seen it in the in video footage, in the Senna film, of course. Yeah, uh, you see the car flexing up and down, but it, it's just great to stand there and watch it doing it. And you they had the body work or the rear body work off, so you could see how it all actuated and you could see it moving. It was fascinating. Just great to see that. It's like watching a. Uh 
uh, to use a railway analogy, like a, a, a high-speed steam locomotive, you kind of you, you obviously wouldn't want to travel from London to York or anywhere like that in one these days. But you can appreciate how high-tech and ingenious it was for its time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and the driving style required from it. Ricardo Petresi came over to have a look at it. Of course, Ricardo didn't really get on with the active car. If you remember, in 1991, in the passive Williams particularly yeah. the first half of the season. He, he was, was giving Nigel Mansell Nigel, an extremely hard time. But come 92, of course, Mansell had that ability to commit because what Ricardo said he struggled with is he would drive to the grip that was there. But on turning, the driver had to understand the grip that would be there when the suspension had done its bit. So Mansell was able to disconnect the bit of his brain that says, no, this isn't going to work for that little instant you turn in. And just expect the suspension to do its job. And he was able to do that beautifully. And of course, here at Silverstone, what was the advantage in pole? I think Mansell was on pole by about 1.9 yeah, seconds. Huge. Maybe even almost two seconds from Ricardo Petrezzi. So not only was the car head and shoulders above the rest of the field, Mansell was able to get far more out of it than Ricardo Petrezzi was. I think Adrian Newey, who uh, may not be here today, I certainly haven't seen him, uh, said that actually it was a little bit like uh, a, a racing 2CV in that regard, in that you had to drive to imagined levels of grip and, and it would go there. And as, as a 2CV racer yourself of, uh, um, on some occasions, you, you must appreciate that. I've done a 24-hour race seven times, yes. And <laughs> there's still one year where we had control of the race for much of it and we, and we didn't quite win it owing to someone's driver. Not mine, I should add. No, Frustrating. You and, you and your excuse. We're on, no, we were on the podium. It's, uh, it's an amazing race. I'd urge everyone to uh, maybe not go and watch the whole thing, but have a look at it, 2CV <laughs> racing. It's, it's something quite, quite special. But I don't know how we've got onto 2CVs. Uh, I did. It was, sorry, my, my <laughs> tendency to deviate. But, but it's great to see some of the cars that are out there. I mean, it's not just the Williams Formula 1 cars. I saw the BMW V12 LMR, the Le Mans winning car, Steve yep. Soper. Uh, has been out in that and that of course was designed by Williams Jason Somerville who was the, it's the head of aero still yeah he was the the aero guy on that car I got to see that car race quite often because uh 1999 Le Mans was my first working Le Mans as part of the uh, greater autosport empire when we published a Le Mans and sports car I was racer about to magazine ask if, if it was in the, the era of that lamented magazine it was in the era of that late lamented magazine and also it went on to race in the American Le Mans series, which, which I covered, and so I got to see Steve Soper and JJ Leto race it quite often. So Steve, of course, didn't recognise me from Adam, of course, because I haven't seen him in eighteen years. So, uh, <laughs> so he's, he's changed quite a bit as well. Yeah, he's very white-haired now. You want a journalist? But um, uh, it's a, not only a clean and elegant race car. I think it, it could have been a bit more successful. Uh, in the American Le Mans series, if not for, I think the engine was the problem in the end, not lack of power, but um, it's quite a narrow V12 with quite a high centre of gravity. And against the Audi it was racing against at the time, which uh, that was a V8, I think, twin turbo V8, if, if memory serves, just had a much more advantageous centre of gravity. So it it, the, the R8 was the quicker car, but the, the BMW still claimed a few scalps. I do like that area of, uh, of prototype racing. Of course, it won the 99 along with Jochen Winkelhop, Pierre Luigi Martini, and Yannick Dalmas. That, of course, was one of the Toyota GC1 years. That was an epic, 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 epic year. I remember that very well. Was that the year when Katayama had the puncture late on? Yeah, basically, the front runners took themselves out. So the Mercedes had flipped uh, two or three times in practice and they'd added a few dive planes, but then. It had its shunt during the race, but even so, 
I remember Bern Schneider basically driving like he was in a rallycross race, trying to stay ahead uh, in in the opening stints, and and the the Toyotas and the lead BMW were basically lured into what became a race of attrition. It was very interesting that the BMW that eventually won was always there or thereabouts. It was just never never in contention with the, these people who were fighting out for the lead. But always come pit stop time, it would shake out that it was kind of close. And they just drove a very cool, calculated race and reaped the rewards. And it's always an advantage to race against Toyota at Le Mans, isn't it? Because Toyota just are not allowed to win. No, no. <laughs> Obviously, they waited until the penultimate lap last year for it to all go wrong. I am led to believe that the guy who used to be the technical director in at that time, was his name Andrea de Cortanza? Uh, de Cortanza, yeah. yeah. He did the... He did the prototype f1 car and everything didn't he he's, he did. he's involved in that project uh, I'm, I'm led to believe and I, I cannot name my sources but he used to boot everyone out of the garage so he could give the gearbox a pep talk <laughs> <laughs> he would talk to the gearbox i've got to say i think there's probably some other things you can do there rather than talking to it maybe uh, <laughs> yeah, bit, design it better no uh, exactly yeah that's uh, that's interesting well, if it was that simple there's plenty of people who like to talk to their racing cars. It's uh, very curious. But anyway, we've, uh, we've digressed off Williams. Of course, Sorry, Toyota, I digressed again. Toyota yeah. was a Williams engine supplier at one stage, wasn't it? Yeah. So uh, that's our tenuous, tenuous connection. But the point you were talking about, about seeing that evolution, is fascinating. You just walk up the garage and you get all the way up to the current car, which is up the far end. And I must say, it's quite amusing. The current car, well, obviously, we've got fans in the pit lane at times when the pit lane's not active, as well as packed in the grandstands opposite plus dotted around the circuit to see the cars moving. And actually, the current cars are not getting anywhere near as much attention as the FW14B and the six-wheeler. Partly partly it's nostalgia, but also Formula One is so much more exposed nowadays. If you want to look at a picture of a modern Formula One car, uh, you just go to the internet and there are 20 million pictures of every single one, whereas a lot of these other ones were not quite so photographed in period. Um, partly because Formula One was less exposed, but also because photographers shot on film, I think. So even if you were particularly industrious, you would probably throw away a lot of shots that didn't work out because you you, you sent your film off to Boots to get processed or whatever, and it came back and there would be some that weren't sharp. And you certainly wouldn't be rattling them off at three frames a second the way digital photographers do nowadays. Exactly. And it's nice, actually, because I've been wandering around and there's a few cars with the bodywork off, exposed and naked, as it were. The car's not me, thankfully. <laughs> um, but it's a good chance. You know when you, you think, oh, I really want a photo from that angle of a DFV from that era. And I think, well, I'm going to take one on my iPhone just in case I need it. <laughs> I, think we've, I think we've got a bit of a DFV special plan. I think we do have. Mag. We have, we have we got got F1 s- Racing will be doing one as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, we do. I can hear a DFV... Uh, uh, firing up un- underneath us. It's brilliant this because we're in one of the commentary boxes in the wing lined up over the pit lane so we've got no idea of what car's going to emerge next. No, no, we'd have to lean out to, to see what it is. It's great to see that uh, little little bit of history and, and it is good to see the drivers enjoying it and the technical personnel. People like Jeff Willis. He's here, yeah. Williams alumnus. He's he's here having a good look at things. Alan Reese here. I've been having to note them down. You turn. Have right we seen Frank Durney? I'm sure Frank Durney. Frank must Durney. Be here. Yeah, I didn't recognise him at first because he didn't have a cup of tea. <laughs> uh, Neil Oatley is here. Uh, he's uh, hot footed it from Indianapolis, where he was part of the the Andretti Autosport Alonso assault. Although uh, I think, given how effective Andretti Autosport were, Oatley didn't have a great deal to, <laughs> to do that. I was no. I was going to say to contribute. Obviously, he's got a huge amount of knowledge, but. Yeah, the list is that Jody Schechter was around as well. Now I, I didn't see Jody. Now, of course, Jody, not a Williams Grand Prix engineering driver, 
However, he did Wolf drive Williams. for Wolf, which was a team that grew out of Williams. And in 76, of course, they were Wolf Williams. Yeah. We've got back into the complexities again. Oh, this is too again, hard. Again, now. But David Coulthard, yeah. Alex Verts. Yeah, Alex Verts. Paul Resta, who's on their books now, was down there. Of course, we should say Felipe Massa is here as well. Felipe Massa here. Lance Stroll's here. And Karun Chandok, of course, later in this podcast. He's, he's out in FW14B, so he's thoroughly enjoying it. One of the things I like about Karun... One of many things. He's, very, he's a very likeable chap. My parents' favourite uh, Formula 1 TV commentator at the moment. It must be that Welsh accent they love. <laughs> uh, but th- the thing I like about Karun is, you know, he's, he's a decent driver. He's worked hard. He's gone a, a long way in his career. When he first came over here, watching him in F3, by his own admission, he was terrible. But he, re- he really worked it and learned. But the thing I like about Karun is he's a Williams Heritage driver, of course, so he gets into these cars relatively often. They've been trying to ramp up that whole organisation. But Karun really enjoys it. You know, there's a point where Riccardo Petrezzi came over and he had a bit of a chat about the FW14B, which Karun's going to go out in shortly. And so we had a bit of a chat, and then Karun dashed back out of the garage. And you thought, well, where's, it? where's he going? And then he dashed back in with the Williams FW14B book, the, the, the book that was recently published by Haynes, yeah. I say recently, in the last couple of years. And so he had to get that, uh, get that autograph by Riccardo Petrezzi. And of course, he, he described himself as a super fan at that stage. And he's, like us all, I'd, I'd say he's, 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 he's very much a f- come, come from fandom. And it is nice to see as well. There's some F1 drivers who have a good respect for history. Sebastian Vettel actually is another one. Yeah. That comes from his father, I believe, who very much, who I think took him to Hockenheim, uh, where Vettel used to be able to watch Schumacher. Uh, yeah. back, back when there were people in the grandstands <laughs> yes yeah as we've got today actually this is although Silverstone's good for people in the grandstands it is 50,000 people they were expecting today and I think that's the number of tickets that um, have been bought or distributed and it is definitely looking like that I had to queue to get in which is actually sort of pretty nice actually <laughs> ask me that question again come Grand Prix time well the good thing is it shows there's the appetite there's the interest and it's a good reward for Williams. Now, this day serves a lot of purposes for Williams. Officially, I think it's a filming day, isn't it? It's one of the, the permissible days where you can it film the modern car. Day, That's yeah. the only reason they can run the current car. And, of course, that has to be on what's called demo tyres to mean that it's actually about running the car. Actually, teams can send observers to make sure on those filming days that it is promotional and everything. So Maybe that's what Jeffrey Willis is here for. Who knows? Who knows? Of course, still at, uh, still at Mercedes. Are filming tyres as difficult to get into the temperature window as the normal ones? Uh, very probably, very probably, especially if you're Williams. I, I, I don't know. But yes, it's, uh, they, are, they are hard and durable, so they're, they're probably not the easiest to get the temperature through. And it's, it's not the warmest of days here. It's... it's it's not necessarily a classic June day at, uh, at no, Silverstone. No, no. Th- apparently the, there is a weather front coming in from the west, so we might get thundered upon later. But it, but it's great that they get to see a modern F1 car, all these historic cars running, and things like the BMW Le Mans car. There's a Formula E car there. I don't, I don't think that's going to run. I haven't seen it move, but the Jaguar Formula E car. Maybe it's just charging. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Listen out for the generator connected to it. It, it is interesting how many sort of... Um, uh, peripheral activities Williams were involved in because obviously you had the BMW uh, Le Mans car and, and to see that the various Jaguars there's one that was in uh, a Bond film here as well I think of course they did that yeah the special edition yeah driven, driven by the villain yeah you're right all the other activities that Williams have got into they're known as a Formula One team but there's a lot of extensions of that while Formula One is the main foundation it is a company that's that's got a little bit more diversification it's not quite McLaren in terms of being a multi-company no. group 
but it's it's kind of a mini McLaren in that regard. They will not thank me for calling them a mini a McLaren. Mini McLaren. <laughs> I, I suspect they will probably point me in the direction of the constructor championship table and say, uh, "You tell us who's the mini team there." <laughs> there is that. There is that. I, and the the other thing that we shouldn't underplay is the effort that. Um, both Williams and, and the, the various owners have gone to to bring the cars here today because getting an old car running is no small matter. Now, some of them obviously are in private hands and are raced in the FIA Masters series, but other ones, I think the FW14 has only been running a couple of weeks and obviously the parts needed to service and run it are that much more rare. The DFV-powered cars are probably a little bit easier to look after and once you get cars from the 1990s onwards um you start having to need a mid-1990s laptop well, to that's plug the problem, into isn't it? <laughs> which sounds very simple but get yourself a mid-90s laptop with ms dos running on it that's not very easy and of course Renault have to play their part they have to go and fish out all the code from their archive to supply it so it's kind of they've got this car here but in order to run it you need to get Renault to dig all sorts of stuff out get the necessary kit to run it on and that's before you've even made sure all the bits of it work. But it was great to see it flexing up and down. I very much uh, enjoy being able to have a look at that and uh, having a bit of a chat to Paddy Love about the uh, the, the challenge of, of getting these these cars up and running. One person, of course, who's not always remembered as a Williams employee, Ross Braun. Who is here as well. Exactly. He joined Williams. In fact, I think he has a distinction from reading his recent book, uh, the Ross Braun Adam Parr book, that I've forgotten the, the title of. But I'd urge it's, everyone to It's got to a needlessly long-winded title with a colon in it, if memory yeah, serves. Yeah, oh, it's to, to, Total... Total Competition. Total Competition, that's the one. I'd urge everyone to read it. It's got some great little uh, stories in it. But I think... If, great if, book, terrible title. Exactly, yeah, but it, yeah. but it is a, it's well worth a read, and you learn a lot from it. But Ross actually briefly worked with the original incarnation of Williams. Yeah, and then, then left and came back. Yeah, and then he, yeah. he joined the the new incarnation. So he's uh, well, he's not considered a Williams man. He very much has got a got a connection yeah. here. He, I think he he said he's employee number eight or something. Oh, like really? That. Oh, Some, something like that. So sing, single digit employee. I wonder what that employee number's up to now. We should uh, we should find probably out. quite a few. But you know, you you look at the people down the years who've come through and from Williams. Uh, you know, a lot of senior technical people began at Williams when it was the sort of team where um, it was very engineering-led, as I suppose it is now, uh, within the the constraints of, of budget being a, uh, a, a non-manufacturer team. But it, they had to rely on ingenuity and creativity a lot more than perhaps some of their rivals did. Uh, and that, you could argue, is uh, why it became such a great finishing school for engineers. Well, it's no coincidence, is it, that so many good people and good drivers as well came through it, through it as well. It's... Uh list is almost endless in fact you can see drivers you haven't mentioned mark webber was around of course a williams driver he was indeed no nick heidfeld here no he hasn't he hasn't turned up which is unfortunate i suppose he'll be he'll be heading to le mans won't he so uh i know i know chandock's having to hot foot it down and pick up darren turner and johnny adam on the way to go to the le mans test day so uh, no terry bootson though i I don't know what his excuse is perhaps his hair wasn't uh, magnificent enough (laughs) Not insufficiently bouffant. Um, Carlos Reutemann will give a bye to because he's probably politically engaged. He's got big business uh, to attend to. But obviously, it was nice to see um, which car is it? There's an FW07 down there, wasn't there, with Carlos Reutemann? Yes. Um, on the the sort of the back of the cockpit effect. That was nice too. It's great to have a look at some of these older cars as well. Uh, I was having a look at that car, look at the cockpit in the footwell and everything. It's so rudimentary. 
It is in know, all hand-built, folded aluminium. Uh, I love the purity of the FW06, and I suppose it's something you don't appreciate until you look at these cars up close, is the extent of that transition between the late 70s F1 machinery and the ground effect cars, because they really had to beef them up, as well as the bodywork becoming that much more boxy to accommodate the Venturi. Oh, exactly, and it is a, it is a living history. And of course, we've got the turbo cars here as well. Honda Turbo, Williams had a great deal of success with before eventually turning their back on Honda, as it were, because they refused to run Satoru Nakajima in 1988. Well, you know, given the choice, um, you can understand why they did that, don't you? Well, exactly. It led to a very tricky season with Judd engines, though, while they, while they waited for Renault to come on stream. Although uh, Mansell did get a couple of second places. I think when he managed to finish races, they tended to, the, yeah. the car tended to fail, but... I think if if you look back, because Williams have had some great years, they've also had some stinkers, and 1988, I suppose, was an outlier in that it was their first absolutely terrible year, uh, and then obviously they, they've had a few ever since where they've uh, kind of struggled to get frontline results. Actually, you mentioned in 1988 makes me think of a little-known Williams driver who is also here. I'm not talking about Jean-Louis Schlesser, of course, he did the Italian Grand Prix famously, and Ethan Senna came into contact with. I always think Schleser gets a rather bad deal for that because had Senna left a little bit more space rather than turning across him, I think it would have been fine and McLaren would have had a full set of 16 It was kind of five of one and half a dozen of the other, wasn't it? Exactly, but Schleser being the one-off driver was uh, entirely blamed for it. Martin Brundle. Martin Brundle, exactly. He was, I I believe Mansell had... Chicken it, pox. It was chicken pox or shingles, wasn't it? So, uh, which, uh, it was probably both and a toxic <laughs> combination. <laughs> it, it was a yeah, it was a doubly doubly deadly version. But no, so he missed two races, and yeah, Brundle got to go in the car as well. So I think Brundle did Spa, didn't he? I think he did. Yeah. So that that's another Williams. It's amazing when you start to draw all these threads together. It's very rare you get to see all these people in the same place and think, oh, of course he was there and he was there and he was there and they were there. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's nice to see that living history and actually. You can see the appreciation for the key figures as well. People were delighted to see Patrick Head because, of course, not only is he a legend in terms of what he, he did, he's also, as you so eloquently... <laughs> Cursed with a voice that carries. Uh, exactly. You took up his... Uh, you channeled his voice earlier. <laughs> he is this big personality and he's just a, a great guy to, to talk to and really brings character to the engineering side, which I think what you need. The best communicators of the engineering side are people like him who add that personality because it, it's not just about process and being and methodical etc there is still today creativity in engineering it's just it's a lot harder to see and for it to to kind of come through and boil through to the surface so people can understand it it's very interesting what um name dropping now uh nelson piquet who's not here uh today sadly um, he was here for the WEC round he was here for the WEC ago, round. wasn't he you did a, an interview with him uh, i've done done an interview with him that's generated many features a uh, couple couple have gone into autosport uh my favorite was the 1992 indy 500 and then of course it's come back in 93 when back, he yeah. that, qualified that 13th one. And he, uh, done, I did a long interview for F1 Racing in which um, he, uh, slightly, slightly counterintuitively, because we're all taught to really um, look up to Gordon Murray as a, as a genius designer, but um, uh, he said, basically, Gordon 
had a weakness that if he hadn't invented something, he wasn't interested in it. Whereas um, Patrick Head, if he saw uh, another team had something interesting and he could understand why it worked, uh, that particular thing would find its way onto the Williams within days and improved. There are still a few people on the engineering side in Formula One who do suffer from not invented here syndrome. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We shall not get into those today, but uh, yeah, there is still sometimes that, that problem. But the best engineers are pragmatists, aren't they? It's all about drawing ideas. Nothing's invented from the ground up, standing on the shoulders of giants and all that. It's all about drawing together all the information, all the understanding, the knowledge to actually produce these, these bits of machinery. Are you going to squeeze in any more Oasis album titles into this podcast? I can, I can try. I can try. <laughs> try better Oasis albums. I, th- I think I should. Shortlist. Uh, well, well, there we go. The, uh, the, I was trying to work out if I get heathen chemistry in, but I, I yeah. don't think that's going to that's work. Definitely. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> What's the stuff? No, I'm not going to go there. No. Gonna- <laughs> Let, let's stop there before things get truly out of control. But it, but it is a great day. And I think credit to Williams, not just for putting this day on and offering the free tickets. And obviously, it works for them commercially as well, because as I was saying earlier, it's good to give something for the fans. But there's also sponsor benefits and commercial benefits. They get all sorts of filming and they are trying to build up their heritage side of the company. And it's great that they're putting all this effort into these cars and bringing them back to life because it is we discussed it it's incredibly incredibly difficult and of course Dickie Stanford a long time team manager is in yeah, charge of the yeah. heritage side and Jonathan Williams as well uh, one of the junior Williams as it were is uh, is kind of the keeper of the history of Williams and we'll be chatting to him in a bit oh good because I need to get hold of him uh, to wave my dictaphone under his nose at, at some point well there we go well we are going to have to say goodbye to you now Codders, because we've got Claire Williams about to come in and explain to us what this is all about and <laughs> and I've got work to do exactly exactly so she is uh, very much well she's very much the keeper of the Williams heritage as well yeah yeah uh, the keeper of the torch really and doing a really impressive job I think as uh, not not just in terms of her role within the team but in a sort of a wider role wi- within Formula One as one of the the big personalities and someone whose voice counts when speaking about a, a range of issues and she's also very interesting uh member of the panel uh in the FIA's Women in Motorsport press conference in Monaco last week. Well this is exactly why we'd rather you stop talking now and then we can have a chat to Claire. Goodbye. So thank you very much Codders. I'll leave you to go and enjoy waving your dictaphone and admiring the six-wheeler. So after that quick switch around we've now got Claire Williams, Deputy Team Principal of Williams, uh here to tell us a little bit about the day. Claire I guess the place to start is you've got a uh, an unusual, for everyone else anyway, relationship with Williams in that not only are you deputy team principal, but you also grew up with it. You're, you're part of the family. So I guess this is, a, this is not just a motor racing history day for you. This is almost a family history as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's actually pretty indescribable how I felt today. Um, you know, when I drove in this morning, it was, I had butterflies and, you know, I'm around Formula One cars a lot, lucky enough to be so. You know, I'm actually just looking out the window and seeing, you know, the 36 and the, the car from 92. It's, it's just it's amazing I don't think I always said before the day started I didn't I don't think I'd want this day to end it's been a really special day and like I said it it is indescribable when it's your family team and there's so much history and it's kind of so interwoven with my life um to see it here to see all the fans it's just been a mega day I don't want it to end what was it actually like being part of Williams growing up was it just something in the background? I mean, obviously, 92 car, was that something that you were watching regularly or was it just something that something that happened kind of in the background of your normal life? 
Well, it's a bit of a mix, I suppose. It was never in the background because dad wasn't one of those guys that just left his work in the office. You know, our whole life was Williams. You know, the conversations around the dinner table were all about Williams. You know, we had weren't a family that did much else apart from think or talk about um, Formula One. But, but equally, we weren't taken as a family to, to the races. Dad was very much of the opinion, no one else has to take their wife and kids to work. Why should I? Fair enough. <laughs> um, British Grand Prix, therefore, was, you know, our big treat. But I always followed the team. You know, it was a big part of our lives. And I say to this day, I don't know what I would be without Williams. That's how, I suppose, integrated it is. If, if someone took this team away from me, I don't know who I'd be or, or what I would do with myself. It would be very strange. But obviously, you didn't go straight into working at Williams, did you? You were here at Silverstone on the on the press side. So I guess it's not kind of the way that people would expect you to have got to this level in the team. It wasn't straight into the family business. Well, I guess the family business, but not literally the actual the actual business. Yeah, so again, it's double whammy for me because Silverstone really does hold a special place in my heart. It was the, the place that gave me my, my first job. Um, but I was never destined to ever come and work at Williams. So I was very happy to... Go and work someone else. Yes, I know Silverstone is still within motorsports. So I didn't really fall far from the tree. Um, but I loved it here and never really expected to, to work at Williams. And obviously that happened 15 years ago and I came up through the, the press office. But I think that was a really great um, you know, starting point for me. When you work in the comms team of, of any business, I think you, you get a real, real holistic overview of that business and you get to meet so many people. Whereas if you're within one discipline, I suppose, in an organisation, then you have a different perspective on things. So for me, it was a great grounding. And obviously, I had the experience of working with the drivers and, and you know, working for Frank and Patrick as well. I learned a lot during my time in, in the press office. And you know, as I said, I just think it's given me a good grounding and, and for doing things like this as well. And the amazing thing about today is wandering around downstairs in the garage. It's not just the cars, is it, which has an amazing array, but everywhere you turn, there's a Williams driver or a a Frank Durney on the technical side, yeah. Ross Braun appeared. You know, it, it's it's a who's who of Formula One, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, when we sent out the invites, I was thinking, oh gosh, you know, no one's going to come. It's one of those things. And we had so many people saying yes. We had a lot of people that couldn't make it, obviously, as well. So I can only imagine what it would have been like if we'd have had the full contingent. But you know, it's been great to see. Stan. what we did, um, one of the things we also wanted to do was invite people that had previously worked for the team and been instrumental in either establishing it or generating so much success in the eighties and nineties. So we've had a large contingent of ex-Williams employees that have been here as well so people that work with Nigel in the day so they've been reunited and that's just a really nice thing to have seen. Is there a favourite car or a favourite driver from your your younger days something that has a particular memory for you? Oh hands down it's Nigel's 14B that's why I've been like literally standing a kind of face up pinned up against the the guardrails waiting for that car to come out I don't know what it is about it there's just something so magical about it it really is a work of art for me both aesthetically but from a tech technical perspective as well and you know Nigel's my favorite ever Formula One driver and you know just the two combined would just they like I said they're magic. It does for me look like a Formula One car should be I think it might just be a, a what your age is as well that there's just a particular point I guess we're sort of similar ballpark age wise so that's probably the same thing and you've got the extra no, I think it. I think you're right. Like you say, it, it to me it is what a Formula One car should look like. It's so simple, yet it's one of the most, or it's so simple to look at, yet underneath all that, it's one of the most technologically advanced cars ever engineered, ever built. Um, but it is, the lines on it are absolutely perfect. It's beautiful. It's nice to have Paddy Lowe here as well, because of course yeah. he was involved in it and yeah. uh, was having a look at it flexing yeah. when it was having the yeah. hydraulics of the suspension flushed out. And obviously he was quite enjoying just seeing it 
yeah. being active again. It was a pretty literally. a pretty complex car. And actually, Paddy told me a story the other day of when he was here for the 92 race. And he, he, he was in charge of all the reading the data. And that race, or I don't know, it was that year as a whole or that race in particular. But we had an issue with a clutch on Nigel's car. But Paddy was describing how obviously coming to Silverstone, Nigel, you know, everyone wanted him to win. It was our race to lose. We were doing so well that year. And he was sat there fully conscious that we had this clutch issue and just desperately hoping that Nigel wouldn't experience it during that race. Anyway, the data points were coming back during the race and about a third of the way through, he saw that the issue had arisen and was sat there for the whole duration of the remaining two thirds thinking, oh my God, please don't break, please don't break. And he didn't tell anybody else in the team because he didn't want to panic anybody. He just hoped that it would last. And obviously, as we all know, it did last. But can you imagine poor old Paddy having to sit there for, you know, 40 odd laps of a Grand Prix just praying that we didn't we didn't give Nigel a DNF. I don't think the British fans would have been too happy with us. Well, especially on such a famous day as well. Isn't yeah, it? How it exactly. Could have been so different. Could have been so different. You know, that's a historic day in Formula One, isn't it now? But it could have been very different. We could have been lynched probably and quite rightly so, but it, it didn't end like that. It was a magical day. And obviously this day, it's great just to see all the cars, but there is kind of a purpose behind it, if you see what I mean. You've got the fans here, you're giving out free tickets, great uptake on that. So you've got the sign up there. Thank you to all our fans for 40 years of support. So it's good from a kind of outreach perspective, I guess. But there's also, it's multifold, isn't it? It's helping to boost Williams Heritage, which is a relatively new addition in terms of a a formalised part of the team. And I guess it has commercial advantages as well. So it's just an interesting approach. So, So why is this day happening from a company perspective, I guess is the way to put it? There is no ulterior motive except to celebrate our 40 years, you know, to have achieved 40 years in a sport like ours, that's such a tough environment. And, you know, let alone for an independent team, how many teams, I think we've seen more than 90 teams come and go in our 40 years in Formula One, yet we're still here, we're still fighting. Um, so this, there was no ulterior motive. I said, as I said, this was purely to do something to celebrate 40 years of just racing and loving racing and you know enjoying sharing that with our fans um you know there was nothing there was no commercial reason you know just to just to do it just to be here and say we're still here guys and look at all the great things that we've done over our 40 years well that's a very good reason in itself but why do you think there's so much love and affection for Williams there's well I was going to say there's a lot of Grand Prix teams there are a number of Grand Prix teams out there a lot of them in one form or another have existed for a while but Williams just seems to hold a a special place in the heart of everyone do you think it's just because it's still effectively a family team isn't it you see I've been asked that a lot today and obviously over my time and I can never really answer it I don't know why maybe because I'm too close I don't know um I would have a stab at saying it's probably all to do with Frank and Patrick and just the people that they are and the people that they've been over their time racing you know they've gone about racing in a very particular way that I think people can relate to and you know they haven't had the easiest run but they've never given up and I think people like that people like that determination that effort you know particularly with Frank's accident and coming back after that and just showing he didn't give a damn and all he cared about still was winning and I think people can relate to that and I think people appreciate appreciate it and enjoy it and that's why we are lucky enough to have so many fans and fans that share that because they haven't given given up on us either despite us not having had the success that we've perhaps had in the past. And where did this desire to build on the heritage side grow from? Because obviously historically Williams, Frank and Patrick weren't really the biggest history kind of people were they it was right race done on to the next one whenever you ask them about races they won they tend to say well I don't remember that one we tend to remember when things went wrong because winning was just what we did it was a normal day and obviously there's 
plenty of cars and bits and pieces and trophies all around the place. But a real effort has gone in in recent years to pull all that together. Not just days like this, but you go into the conference centre at Grove and you've got all the trophies and all the memorabilia from the former drivers there. And it really seems that this is a team that's embraced its history almost after the rest of the world did, if you see what yeah. I mean. Well, you know, I think everyone knows how modest Frank and Patrick are. And like you say, they weren't ever people to look back. It was always about the next race. And that was the case of needs must. Um, but I think it is hugely important for us as a team, as much as our future is what we have to focus on and what, you know, 90% of our business is focused on. It's also equally important to make sure that we respect the history that we have and to celebrate it um, and to protect the legacy that Frank and Patrick have created. There's no point just going or writing it off and saying it doesn't matter all that effort, that hard work, that sacrifice that so many hundreds of people that have been a part of this team have made over the years. It's been really important to make sure that we we put a, a, a kind of protective arm around it and to nurture it and to enable it to grow, whether that be through... You know, the museum that you mentioned looking after our collection and in which we've got 40 cars now and as, you know, the collection houses the most successful car from each championship or whether it be making sure that we can do days like this. You know, if we didn't have that heritage team, we couldn't do events like this. But equally, there are people out there that want to buy historic Williams cars and take them out and race them, which is wonderful as well. They should be. These these things, to me anyway, they're living, be- they're living beasts. They should be out. They should be fulfilling, you know, their destiny. And that is to be on a racetrack, being raced on a Sunday afternoon. So heritage, the division itself, you know, just from the day, you can tell what a great job that that division does. Um, but it's a huge part of what we do and what our future is about as well. It shapes our future at the end of the day. And I imagine it's nice to have the connection with the past and the present. You had Felipe Massa out. He was out in the six-wheeler I saw earlier, which obviously is a very rare car to get the chance to drive. And it, it, I guess it's a, appealing for your current drivers to have access to this history. I went into Nico Rosberg, who was enthusing about obviously when he got the chance to do a bit of driving back when he was a Williams driver and yeah. getting some of the older cars. They love it. They seem to really get a kick out of coming and driving these. And I know Karun, bless him, he's our heri- official heritage driver and he's had the... The, the kind of main responsibilities today and particularly driving that 14B that hasn't been driven for 25 years or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, to have that resting on, to take that out and in particularly in front of 50,000 people and, and Nigel who used to drive it and Ricardo Patrese who's here as well. You know, that's a big old burden on your shoulders, isn't it? But I know that they... They love it. I mean, what could be better than taking Nigel Mansell's 92 car out in front of 50,000 British fans? I wouldn't want to do it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Especially for someone like Karun. He described himself earlier as as a bit of a super fan as well. Oh, yeah. He was getting a Williams FW14B book signed by some of the people involved. So it's nice that he understands the enthusiasm and the passion that the people out there will have for it because he's feeling the same thing and it's good that they get a bit of fun time as well you know these drivers you know they have quite a you know tough job of it you know particularly someone like Lance who's in his rookie year and has you know had a, a tough opening few races you know to come to a day like today and to get to drive the cars you know that's that's a bit of fun and it just takes the pressure off and you know like this I always say this is such an amazing world to be a part of you know you want to enjoy it sometimes Formula One you know is big business these days there's a huge pressure on all of us that work in it to keep everything going um to do days like this just reminds you that you know there still should be some fun in Formula One and in terms of the the day job I was going to say the bit that's not fun but obviously there's still a great (laughs) deal of fun in racing how do you feel things are going in 2017 obviously it's been solid season the, the car's a, a decent reliable point scoring car but perhaps not quite up where you want it to be so where do you see things at and what's the hope for progress for the rest of the season 
Yeah, I think, you know, you're right. I think we came into this year probably not um, expecting a whole lot. Um, We were kind of worried, new regulations. You know, we finished last year in fifth in the championship. But actually, you know, our expectations, we've we've been kind of slightly surprised, I suppose, that the car is probably the fourth quickest car out there in in race trim, which is great to see. It means we've got a good platform to work from. And now Paddy's on board and obviously doing the job that he's doing in engineering, we can drive that, the performance forward throughout, through the car. Um, But there's still, there's still work to do. This season, you know, we've had a lot of bad luck. We seem to always have quite a lot of bad luck at Williams. Um, but we've also made mistakes. You know, Lance, as a rookie, as we expected, um, has had a tough start to the year, but we didn't expect anything different. But he has shown that he's got the talent to be in the car and to get the job done. It'd be great if going to Canada, he can get some first points for the team. And if we can get that side, you know, going, I think we're being going to be in, in really good shape. I guess that's the key, isn't it? Having two point scoring cars, particularly in the second half of the season. As you say, with any rookie, you always give them time to feel their way. And then it's, it's a big step up for Lance, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I think everybody needs to remember, you know, he's still only 18. That's really young. And he's transitioned from Formula 3 straight into Formula 1. And most most guys get to do it quietly. They get to do it, you know, in a, in a small team. I don't want to offensive by saying that but in a team that perhaps doesn't have the same spotlight that that we do at Williams you know he's had to do it you know really out there and everyone's looking at him and judging and you know, people were doing that before he even got in the car you know I would just say you know I would wish people would cut him a bit of slack because if you look at other drivers that we have in our sport the Vettels the Raikkonen's and you look at their track record in their hand, first handful of races in their rookie years they were scoring or they were finishing in exactly the same way as Lance has done and look where they are today. Excellent well I know you've got a lot to do plenty of things to see and just some some cars to look at when you've, yeah. you've got a few moments to spare exactly. so I, I shall let you go but thanks Thank very you. much Claire and no, I guess the last right. question is are there going to be any more events like this are people going to be able to I think enjoy? we need to do more don't we you know if, if 50,000 people come and watch this today then clearly they want to see more of what we do and you know, as a team we like to think that we're accessible and we want to be more so so I don't think this will be the last time that you see us do something like this. Well, you've got over 100 cars, haven't you? So that's plenty to wheel out. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to get them working first. (laughs) Carl, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Ed. I'm joined now by Jonathan Williams of Williams Heritage. I guess you're the the keeper of Williams' history in many ways. You're certainly the the person who keeps track of everything and of what these cars did, if not the the technical side. I guess that's Dickie Stanford's uh, job. It is, yes. So... Between us, we sort of cover the basis for what is the activity of heritage from, as you say, the archiving of the cars plus the components and information that goes with them and the planning for things commercially, which then will lead into Dickey in terms of what we require of the cars, in particular for a large scale event such as this. Uh, through to client support. Uh, Dickie has one day off tomorrow, then he's on a plane on Sunday to Indianapolis where we have a 1990 FW13B having some fun with its owner later on this week. So between us, we sort of cover what we're striving to achieve with this program, which is still quite young. And on the back of 40 years of largely successful history as an entrant in the world championship i think we've got some good opportunities ahead of us and i think today really has i mean even for ourselves who are greatly exposed to this it's been overwhelming as an eye-opener so uh i know nobody looks forward to getting old but it's quite interesting to think what the 50th anniversary celebration might be like so uh kind of already looking forward to that one that's good to hear the planning's underway for that I, well, I didn't say the planning was, we're not, we're not that good, but I'm um, just actually thinking about it. 
Well, tell me a little bit about this day. Obviously, we've got the banner that it's to thank 40 years of, of support from the, yeah. from the fans. How has this come together? How has it happened? And has it kind of gained a life of its own? Because it seems to have been hugely popular. I, I mean, I, I, I think it, it, the, you may trace the origins from our, our side back into the, the latter part of last year. Uh, it's obviously we have some very clever and very creative people on the communication side of our team and they have a mission statement to sort of deliver key aspects of what we're doing, not just our participation in the World Championship, but our advanced engineering, for example. And of course, with an anniversary such as 40 coming up, it's a rather rare occasion where every endeavor that is Williams, so Formula One, Heritage, Advanced Engineering, it can all be celebrated and to an extent emphasized through one key event. So therefore, to come to a venue such as Silverstone, not only the the history that this place has, but also the history that we have within that, from our first win to our 100th win, to victories for home t- talent such as uh, Nigel Mansell, Damon Hill. So yes, I think it did take on a life of its own. I was... Uh, Sometime this week, just getting finally, well, the final part of organization, I went into the email file to look for a, a rogue email. And I just had my finger on the down key and I was there for what seemed an eternity. And I just couldn't believe how much had actually gone into this event, just all this planning, all of these people that were involved. So, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's it, it, it's come together very quickly because uh, a key aspect of it was pre, pre-British Grand Prix. So we had to sort of hustle from that point of view. But... uh I think, like all good racing people, they respond to pressure. So Dickie and the crew, both in Heritage and in the factory, they have the responsibility for the cars that we delivered, in a word, have been superb. And it's been great to engage with friends of Williams who cherish and, more to the point, run these racing cars that we created. And we're now very lucky that they're in their hands. We were able to invite and have a great selection of those guys here. But I think really the bottom line has been the support we've had. I mean, you've seen these grandstands and we didn't mean for the FW14B to make a, a late appearance in the day. It just sort of uh, threw us a curveball quite early this morning. But perhaps in some ways that built a little bit of anticipation and watching the reaction from these these uh, blue grandstands that you and I are now looking out across as they sort of empty out at the end of the day. That really was what sort of brought it home, just sort of how significant the achievements of this team have been down the years and therefore the great sort of confidence that we should take into our future endeavors and particularly the world championship and how did you come to be involved on the heritage side obviously it's no accident you got involved in williams your surname's not williams by coincidence no but (laughs) why is this the the path you've ended up going down because you were obviously dealing with the heritage side before williams heritage as it was was created a few years ago In 1997, it sort of dawned on me that we didn't have too much organization in terms of the assets that we had. We knew where they were, but it was all verbal. You would have to ask somebody, where is that car? And they were like, I think it's over there. And then you would have to go and eyeball it. So it's quite a basic thing. So it started off with organization, really a way to sort of fill time between other activities which I was developing, which in particular were the uh, young driver work. So around that time, I was quite at the forefront of our activities with the likes of Juan Pablo Montoya, Jensen Button, and then evolving into later years, drivers such as Nico Rosberg, for example, Antonio Pisonia, who's here today as well. But uh, I sort of, for a number of reasons, stopped racing a few years ago. 
But at the same time, when Mike O'Driscoll joined as a CEO, he had a great sort of passion, but more to the point, knowledge for the significance and therefore the potential for what is heritage, given his authority over Jaguar Land Rover's heritage fleet. And he and I schemed that we had a great opportunity at Williams, given what we've achieved down the years, but also as an inventory, what we still possess. And uh, sort of taking it one step at a time with resource being on a bit of a chicken and egg basis, we've sort of looked to build something whereby we can commercially activate our heritage, bring some interesting cars online. An example being what we mentioned a moment ago, Dickie Stanford flying to Indianapolis this week to run Thierry Bootsen's 1990 Hungarian Grand Prix winning FW13B, which was one of the very early cars that we brought into this program when we got it off the ground in 2015, restored that car, ran that car at events, and then took some interest in the car following marketing of it. And it's gone off to the United States to a great home. And that's where we want to see more cars going and more engagement with those cars as they go on to the next part of their life with their new owners. So it's as simple as if you're somebody with the means to do it and the interest, just give Williams a ring and potentially you could be driving around and own the car. Have the yes, car run yeah, by it is. Yeah. I had to put that sort of a little bit on the shelf for the first six months of this year to get to this day to day. It'll, it'll seem a little bit surreal next week when there isn't work to do for this event. There might still be a little bit of signing off of invoices, but there's going to be a little bit, it'll be a little bit surreal not having this event to aim for next week. So, but, uh, but it, it, it'll allow us to get back on track and start looking at, uh, at sort of the next cars to come online, interesting cars such as Damon Hill's career debut winner, the FW15C from Budapest, and then Spa and Monza 93, that race winner, a Riccardo Patrese, another driver who was here today, a Riccardo Patrese, early Renault car with some interesting race history from 1989, another Damon Hill race winner. There's some interesting cars coming along and uh, and hopefully some more ideas to follow those. And what's the, the magnitude of the collection you've got there of the cars in various forms? Obviously, most of the cars here are still Williams owned. There are a few that aren't. Obviously, the March seven six one is privately yeah. owned. The and quite a, and a pair of FW 6s and FW 7s were brought by friends of ours, as was the LMR by BMW. I mean, as a round number, as a company, Williams own about one hundred and twenty of our cars. But when you have forty years history as a constructor, and you look back at some of the real peak periods of uh, of car usage, probably. To uh, be well, coincidentally, the time with BMW. Uh, I mean, at one point in 2001, we built nine cars because it was just so much testing, just nine cars to cover the program in 2001. So they build up, and uh, so that's why we've got 120 of them. Not all of them are with engine because, unlike a Ferrari down the down the years or a Mercedes present day. We've never been the creator of the engines, so we retain some of the engines from our partners down the years, Honda, Renault, BMW, Toyota, Cosworth, hopefully one day Mercedes. But uh, there are some cars whereby we can offer them just as an aesthetic, and that's appealing to people too, because uh, uh, they're quite sort of uh, demanding things to own as operational cars, Formula One. So uh, n- not everybody wants that, but they still actually want the piece of history that they saw as a child or as a young man flashing past these grandstands at Silverstone. And they later in life aspire to a piece of that. So again, that's something we can we can help to deliver. And you make it sound quite simple running these cars, which of course it isn't. 
I guess people will not really have a feel no, for the, I mean, the challenge of doing it. I'm thinking in terms of the FW14B, you need that's, the right laptop with the right data, with it with the right well, be, DOS-based <laughs> software. Yeah. So that that's incredibly challenging. FW14B, the car that you've seen successfully run here today, uh, that's really been the challenge of, of this. And even prior to the official arrival of Williams Heritage. We tried to be active with that car five years ago in 2012. There was some interest from Renault to have it appear at their World Series meetings. But it just, it, it, it somewhere in that car on the engine electrical side, there was a gremlin and it never ever presented itself despite being sought after by some very, very clever technicians. And we sort of, we assessed that for 40th, we really had to have a special car. And I think when you list the special Williams, I think most people would put that at the top. So we thought we have to get, we have to look at this car again. And so chassis six, the original 14B, the first one built, it's, it's a continuum of chassis numbers from 14A to B. So the first five are the A's, the passive car from 91. And B starts with six and runs through 11. Okay, so we've got to go back to this rogue again. So get him out of the museum where he'd been for the last four years and uh, same problems presented so we were thinking it's going to be longer term than we think so maybe it's not quite going to be the car for 40th and therefore for other events we've got planned this year but then we were talking to Cosworth and about a wider sort of picture on these cars thinking well if the original manufacturers can't support us then maybe we need to look at sort of updating these systems and that's going to be more practical for our partners and our clients to run these cars. So in the midst of those early talks where we said, look, we would never actually ask you to do something, uh, we would, in less than six months, we sort of got them down to Grove and said, I know we said that, but we've got this big event at Silverstone at the very end of May, when May turns into June. We're two months away from that. Is there any chance you could do a car for us now? And... We thought they would just go wide-eyed at us, and they were like, let's have a look. And they engaged some brilliant people with us, especially a chap called Milan, and we've got a running FW14B with a complete Cosworth control system on it. And that was less than two months of work, so I can't sort of say enough about them and be grateful enough to those guys, because without Williams Heritage, Dickie Stanford, the FW14B would not be here, but also without Cosworth, the FW14B would not be here. So ironically, it sort of raced against Cosworth product in 1992, and now... Without Cosworth, it wouldn't be here. So these cars evolve even 25 years after their racing period. They've still got, uh, they've still got things to do and corners to turn. And I guess it shows the need to invest in that history as well because the cars, it's great to see them run, isn't it? Because that's what they're yeah. there to do. It's nice to look at them, but seeing Karim Chandok out on yeah. track earlier and the reaction from the crowd, it's just fantastic, yeah, isn't it? I mean, any car really is about you know, driven and motion. A racing car is that on a frenzied scale and throw in just sort of fantastic sound, especially from a three and a half liter V10. And it's, it, it's all rather frenzied, isn't it? When it when it presents itself as a package in front of you. And uh, that's sort of really what any car is for to, to see an FW14B running. I mean, I think it's, it's made our day. And I, I, I think I'm confident enough to say it's made a lot of people's days who again were sitting in these blue seats or opposite. I mean, amazing. They were there all day. I mean, uh, I mean I, I'm a person who can't really keep that still. So I'm, I'm actually very grateful and impressed. And I, I hope there was a good reason 
and that they enjoyed that through the cars that they saw today. And I'm sure 14B was a big, well, from their reaction, 14B was a popular one. Is there a favourite car for you? If I had to pick one, the one that I've been most interested to see actually was the six-wheeler. Okay. Um, just to see, just from a curiosity perspective, yeah. if you see what I mean, to see that running and the quick chat to Martin Brundle after he drove, it just said how amazing it was, obviously, the, uh, the ground effect. Gives it a huge amount, yeah, of, a huge amount of grip as well as the extra traction. So that that's a pretty special and unusual car to have. It is, and again, that was part of the motivation for Fortieth was to bring something different. That car la- last ran in 1998 at that year's Goodwood Festival of Speed. So it's been a museum piece since then. So again, it it started restoration process in February. Uh, was a, a far smoother ride than FW14B, but just as worthwhile, and. Yeah, so I, I can, I mean, again, that was just really wanted to do something different. So I'm glad that that car resonated. Uh, from my point of view, I mean, aside from 14B, the car that I was, I mean, the cars here that, I mean, a big, big part of the cars here for me was the BMW Le Mans car. Because what's great about our history is, is that through many sort of forms of management, primarily my father and Patrick, whether we sort of knew we were doing it or not, but we were actually preserving a pretty impressive collection of our cars not just by the year but by the chassis number meaning the cars that created those moments during their racing periods they were the cars that we've held on to and they were and but obviously with the BMW we don't have those cars they were they were right from the get-go they were BMW's assets we were commissioned by BMW to design manufacture and assist with the operation of those cars from Grove so actually now the heritage uh, workshop is in the building created for that project BMW Motorsport so that car has been a big big moment I mean there was a lot of interest from there's still quite a few Williams people who were key to that program who are with us now. And there was particularly by one very senior member, a touch of emotion when that car rolled in yesterday. So I think that's been a highlight. But then every car that's been here today, whether running or static, has got a has got a story to tell and a very strong reason to be here. So it'd be very hard to pick one, but the BMW was just novelty. And that was a, a, a very, very sort of big part of it being here for me was just we just don't get to see that car because they live at that wonderful home in Munich with BMW. So we don't get to see them as often as we do our other cars. But to have a Le Mans victory on our CV is huge. I mean, it's already, without trying to be too biased, impressive enough when it's 16 world championships, 114 race wins, uh, a truckload of podiums and poles and points, but to have the success with the Renault Laguna in the British Touring Car Championship, the history with the Metro 6R4 in Group B rallying, the other things that we're doing now with our advanced engineering program, but to have the Le Mans, to have a Le Mans car actually created at Grove uh, with BMW, such a, a, a superb and prestige manufacturer, that's just that's just big. Well, it's certainly great to have it so well looked after and curated. So I guess on behalf of all the fans as well, well, thank you for the effort no, that goes I mean, into we, it. We, I think a bit more grateful. Thank you, but we're more grateful towards those guys because without them, the day, well, the day was just superb. And, and with them, it was, just, and well, that's the reason why. So thank you to them. Okay, well, that's a good note to end on. I know you've got plenty to do, so I'll let you get on. Thank you very much. We could have oh, well, talked for hours about you, every yeah. car. I've got some Diet Cokes now after all this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's been a great day, so yeah, try no, and have you. a bit of a... I'm glad you enjoyed it, and yeah. thank you for being here. No, no, it's it's uh, it's great to see them, just as just yeah. I mean, ultimately the journalists to the fans. You had well. a very good view. <laughs> exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had a very good view up here, yeah. 
Well, having talked a lot about the past, I think it's probably a good idea to talk a little bit about the present and maybe a little bit about the future of Williams. So now Lawrence Barreto, one of our F1 correspondents, is joining us. He's obviously a regular in the paddock, so he's uh, not long back from Monaco and he'll be off to Canada imminently. So Lawrence, Claire Williams earlier said that in some ways they were quite surprised with the performance of the car in a positive way because they think on race pace they're a clear fourth fastest car. And certainly, Massa has had some strong results in the first six races of the season. But where do you see where Williams are? Because it's very much upper midfield fodder at the moment. And the fact that only Felipe Massa is scoring points is obviously hurting quite badly in terms of the Constructors' Championship. I think the fact that Lance Joel hasn't scored yet makes it look as if Williams aren't doing that well. But you make a very valid point that Felipe Massa, I think he scored 20 points this year. He's very much um, said that when he has crossed the line, he's got the most out of the car and he has scored points. I think he scored points four, on four out of six occasions. Um, and I just think this year, Williams, as you say, have produced, I think, a better car than they, they were ex- you know expecting to, to do. Um, last year was a tough season. Very competitive, Force India were very strong and Williams obviously missed out in that battle. Uh, this year, Williams worked hard over the winter and they seem to be, at least with one car, making the most of their opportunities. That said, with Lance, they knew what they were taking on with a rookie. They knew that it was going to take time for him to start delivering and they seem to be um, backing him. You know, they're, they're throwing their weight behind him. Well, they have to, don't they? There's a financial side to this whole deal. Definitely. And at this point, like you said, they made a decision. They they wanted him in the car. They've obviously got the financial side, and that is important to Williams's future. So not just this year, but you know a long term future, and also gives them the stability. So even if they have to take this short term pain, so this you know first few races where Lance really does struggle, there's there is genuine hope within the team that they'll be able to pick up where you know pick up the points that they've lost later in the season. Obviously, the key thing is that he does start scoring as the season goes on, because I do believe in giving drivers time. Lance Stroll. He is a good driver. He's not the European F3 champion for no reason. He won 14 races last year, 15 F3 race wins in total. So he, he's not a mug. He is a quick racing driver and he's, I believe, got the ingredients to be successful at this level. I have, as I've said before, got some reservations about how quickly he's moved into it. And I think that's probably made his job harder. But what do you make of what we've seen from Stroll so far? I always think you can have the first four races as a bit of a buy. He was up and down. He had a Q3 appearance, obviously. So he's done a few bits and pieces. The races haven't always gone to plan. Not necessarily so much through his own fault often. There have been times when he's been involved in incidents and, and been off and it hasn't been down to him. But we're now six races in. Obviously, he still hasn't scored a point. He came close uh, to the points in um, Russia, wasn't it? Where he finished 11th. I don't remember which race it was. Only six of them to keep track of. But what do you make of what we're seeing from Lance Stroll? Are you seeing the 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 progress that you'd expect to see from a driver who is going to be in a position to come race 9-10 be nailed on for points week in, week out? I think on that point of when he finished 11th in Russia, if he hadn't had that spin on the first lap, he probably would have been in the points. So it just goes to show that, you know, he's not that far off, or at least in that race, he wasn't that far off. And a lot of thing, a lot of this has got down to, will come down to confidence. And, you know, if he'd had got points that race, that would have boosted him. But he's got now on a succession of races where he feels that maybe things aren't going his way. He's getting a lot of bad luck. He's even admitted he's made mistakes. So it's not like he's trying to hide behind it and saying he's he's perfect. I think he would have hoped to have 
um, had more luck and had better performances by this point. But he is—he's only eighteen, so he's very young. He appreciates the massive step that he's made. He appreciates that although he has a lot of had a lot of time in F1 cars, but it was a an older spec car, not the current generation cars. It's not quite the same. And he's also admitted that he's struggling with the tyres, which he's not the only driver on the grid that is struggling, you know, to get the most out of the tyres. So I think that it's a combination of him just coming in at a very difficult time. Whether he can get on top of the problems in time um, that Williams will maintain faith in him, I don't know. But I think at the moment, he seems to have the team around him that is supporting him in that. And as long as they keep supporting him in that, that's all he can really ask for. Well, it's the team's job to work to get the best out of the driver, just as it's the driver's job to work to get the best out of the team and get the best out of themselves. And I guess it's just a, a time thing, isn't it? That as time goes by, the pressure to actually deliver builds up and the fact you haven't got that good result under your belt. I think, like you say, a points finish in one of the early races would have just been a nice little settler, as it were, just to get the monkey off the back and carry on carry on learning. So I guess that's his big challenge. It does feel to me like it's getting to the point where he does need to just just even pick up a 10th place just to get on the scoreboard. And I guess Canada would be a good place to do that, being his home race. It would be. And he doesn't seem phased by the fact that he's going to Canada, where I know the organisers have been talking about this Lance Stroll effect. So there'll be a huge amount of interest in it. He'll have a load of PR activities before the race. But he doesn't seem phased by that. He keeps talking about he's just focusing on the job, but he does need that result. And what better place would there be than Canada? I think it, it does play in his favour that, as we've said, he's been afforded time at Williams to settle in. There were drivers on the grid, you know, we're already talking about maybe Julian Palmer coming under pressure for, for keeping his seat at Renault, and he's in his second season. So I, I just think that, Lance, as long as he does keep his head down and if he is as talented as we think he is and as his results have proved, then he will come good eventually if he just keeps putting putting the work in. Oh, very much so. I still think he'd have done a little bit better with a few years under his belt just doing F2, just uh, more mature as a driver, if you see what I mean, and get that racing experience. Then it's just less of a step because certainly watching him on track and testing, he was a little bit sort of hanging on to the car in terms of not just relaxed with it if you see what I mean that's often something you see in drivers when they're just trying to just catch up with themselves so we'll have to see we have seen drivers promoted too early and and struggle but then prove themselves down the line to be very good drivers so we'll just have to see how how he gets on but it's interesting for Williams obviously we're speaking among all this heritage countless Grand Prix wins championships all the great drivers and engineering personnel we've we've seen here at Silverstone today but Williams obviously now is a it is sort of a strong midfield team, isn't it? You felt that point they had two consecutive third places in the Constructors' Championship in 2014 and 2015, which was very good. But it almost feels like now Williams's position is third, fourth, fifth, sixth overall. I don't think it has to be uh, a team that just sits in the midfield now. But we are in this period in Formula 1 where things potentially could change in the next few years with talk of um, changing the bilateral agreements um Chase Carey has talked about introducing the constitution, all those kind of things that might level the playing field. And if Williams can kind of hold where they are at the moment and stop the slide, which I think is quite important to point out that they, when they last struggled, they went down quite a big dip. Whereas here, I know they've dropped the back back into the midfield, but they don't seem like they're going to be going down any further. They seem to be kind of holding in that position. And I think that's really important. And if they can kind of stay around there, 
keep developing and you know kind of produce the kind of in-season development that they improve uh, that they produced in 2014 and 2015 there's no reason why they can't be contenders this year everyone's talking about how there's a development race this year so if they can keep up with that there's no reason why they can't force india proved what you can do with a you know a reasonable budget which i think force india and williams have got a pretty similar budget to be honest so there's no reason why they can't do that this year you know i think i think williams are doing a good job with what they've got they're making the most of it and so long as they stick with this and just hold on until we wait and see what happens with the the how they distribute the prize money in the future i think williams can bounce back up and become a, a winning team again it's tricky though isn't it because force india is the interesting comparison they've been quite close to them in the championship quite often and if you look at last year obviously because williams gets the 10 million dollar the heritage payment that they've got for being i was going to say for being a long-standing team but it, it's not a, a long-standing uh, team bonus that's the only that's the one that only ferrari gets obviously this bonus that williams has is nothing like the 68 odd million dollars that ferrari gets and i think mercedes and Red Bull get the $35 million Constructor Championship bonus. So Williams just gets 10. But that was enough to put them ahead of Force India in terms of the money paid based on last year when they finished behind them in the, in the championship. So I guess that's the the difficult thing, isn't it? But they're very different teams, aren't they? Williams does a lot more in-house. It still does its own gearboxes. Whereas Force India relies a lot more on outside, uh, outside suppliers, that kind of thing. So I almost feel like Williams is a, a small, big team whereas Force India is a big small team, if you see the, the distinction. Yeah, I think that's fair, but I, it also proves that both models work, and I think that's very important for Formula 1, because it shows that if new teams are thinking about coming into F1, there are two options, you know, two two kind of schools of thought. Um, Williams obviously have Williams Advanced Engineering. They operate it, you know, as a business, and they, they want to expand, so you can understand why they're doing it that way. Uh, and they're a proud racing team, you know, that's, you know, the way that they've, wanted that's the way they want to go racing um perhaps that does hold them back because you could argue that force india have proved that that other model from where they've come to is is a, is a successful way of doing it but i think it would take away from what williams are and i don't i think i don't think they would ever want to change what they're doing how about the paddy low effect well paddy's obviously part of a quite sweeping changes that williams made to their technical team over the winter i think there there was a feeling within the team that they were just they weren't making the most uh, of that department, should we say, last year. And that was clear through the development. Uh, Paddy seems to have given a boost uh, to the team. I suppose, I suppose when you, you get someone of Paddy's calibre who's just joined from a team that's won several championships successively, that's going to boost confidence anyway. And there's going to be a belief in his ability. I think Paddy's arrival is a great thing for Williams. Um, I think... He, his arrival plus the kind of regeneration or the boosting of the rest of the department is a good thing as well but obviously these things take time so even though Paddy has been part of the team now for a few months I guess you you could say that his impact won't actually really take effect until next year at the earliest that's no bad thing because Williams aren't in a terrible position at the moment but I think all the early signs are very positive yeah it takes a long time for these things to to have an impact it's a bit like a, a truck turning around isn't it it has to slow down and change direction and then once it's going in the other direction it, it's motoring pretty emphatically so I guess for for Williams now it, it's just a question of keep keep building be stable I guess that's the key thing the Mercedes engine deal they agreed for 2014 was a decent long-term one after quite a long period of chopping and changing between Renault Toyota Cosworth and then going back to when they uh 
Potter Company from BMW after the 2005 season. So we're just looking at that steady progression, really, aren't we? That's that's what it's about. But they've got stability at the moment, Williams. Like you said, Mercedes, that's a, that is a long-term partnership. Both parties are happy with how things are going on that score. Um, you've also got um, the sponsors that they've got are core sponsors that they're co- hopeful of sticking on on long-term arrangements. But you've also Martini's got- a great sponsor, isn't it? Doesn't that look great on the car? Oh, definitely. And also the, the activation that Martini is doing as well, kind of, it very f- much fits with William's image of kind of getting together with the fans and kind of creating these experiences. Um, but then you've also got the funding that's come in through, um, through Lawrence, Joel. So you've kind of, it just, Williams, if you look at it on a business plan, it looks good. And I, I think Williams have got to be confident that that gives them the foundation going forward. It might be that they're going to be taking little steps now for the next couple of years, but little steps forward are better than no steps or going backwards. We should also have a little bit of a look ahead to the Canadian Grand Prix. Williams, barring something very odd happening, won't be in contention for victory there, but we're expecting it to be the next part of the Ferrari versus Mercedes show. So what do we think is going to happen there? Is it going to be a a Vettel and Ferrari track or a Hamilton and Mercedes track if we're focusing purely on the title rivals? Well, what I think is quite refreshing is we're going to Canada and we're not quite sure. Um, all too often in the last few years, we've gone to a race and generally speaking, Mercedes going to be dominating. And now we're into race seven of this campaign and it's still unclear. You would say, as um, as Toto Wolff maybe described, he described Mercedes as underdogs uh, at the weekend. And you could say that that will be the case going to, um, going to Canada. Mercedes have been struggling with tyres. And that could yet be a problem in Canada. Mercedes should have the benefit that their engine uh, should be a boost for them there compared to Monaco where they struggled against Ferrari. So I think it's going to be much closer. I think there's a couple of interesting things uh, to look out for. Uh, how Kimi Raikkonen reacts to what happened in Monaco. Um, he's been very strong in qualifying. So if he plays an impact, I think that could make it exciting. Valtteri Bottas, you know, he's been strong all year uh, for Mercedes, so he could have a say. So I don't think it's just Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel that are going to have a say in how this race plays out. And obviously, Lewis, how is he going to react to another tough weekend? Lewis has off weekends now and then, but he's had two and six now. How is he going to respond to a track that generally he goes quite well at? What do we expect lower down the order? Fernando Alonso back with McLaren after his brief Indy 500 sojourn. There seems to be some question mark over the... McLaren engine upgrade, the, the Honda engine upgrade that's been talked about. So what's going on there? Do we expect to see the the upgrade and the consequential improvement in performance or are we not expecting to see it or is it wait and see till Friday? So Honda started the season hoping to introduce uh, its first major upgrade of the season in Canada. And then this, this would be the upgrade that takes it from podium contender to victory contender, presumably. Uh... <laughs> That was the plan. <laughs> that, that was probably the dream, should we say. Exactly. Um, so they're hoping uh, to introduce uh, the update in Canada. On the face of it, at this moment in time, it's looking unlikely. McLaren aren't that hopeful that it's going to be the case. Even Honda aren't quite sure that they're going to have the spec ready to go. And they, given what's happened this season, they need to be certain that this update is going to be reliable and it's going to be worth it. Otherwise, they'll just take another hit and... It's a question of how many hits can you take. I think for morale, it's important that when this update does come, it is a boost in performance. Even if it's not massive, it's just a boost and it shows there's maybe good correlation between Sakura and the track, which there hasn't been this year. And I think that has become a major concern. So whether there's going to be an update in Canada, 
it's anyone's guess genuinely at the moment, but it looks like there isn't going to be one. That could cre- create tension within the team. Um, you mentioned Fernando Alonso is coming back. I imagine he will be in a, a better mood given what's been happening in the Indy. But even Zach Brown conceded when he spoke to media in Monaco that there's only so long that's going to last. And the thing is, if they have more problems in the early sessions, it's just going to go back to being feeling like Groundhog Day, isn't it? It does feel like this next Honda step is going to be quite important because McLaren and Honda are trying to convince Fernando Alonso that this is a project worth sticking with because he's one of their prized assets. They they know he is a driver who will win the world championship if given a world championship winning car, or at least give it a damn good go. So I guess the key point is when that package goes in the car, that it feels right, that it's a good step, that it says to Alonso, look, this is the step we thought we were going to take. This is a step the engine is producing. And then you can at least see a pathway where Alonso might be convinced this is worth his time. But if it's not, then that's worrying. So there's there's a lot hanging on this, surely, isn't there? There is, and I think that is probably of great concern to Honda because I just don't get the feeling at the moment that they think it's going to be a massive step. Um, They've spoken about bringing little bits and pieces to each race and making little steps, and you just don't, having dealt with them for the last couple of years, I just don't get the impression that they're expecting something massive for this update. Um, They haven't said that outright, you know, and and you wouldn't expect them to, but just how how they've kind of approached things and um, given explanations about things. I just don't feel it's going to be that step. And that's a massive concern, like you said, because this is around the time where, regardless of, regardless of whether McLaren say this is the case or not, they're going to start to have to talk to Fernando about, you know, convincing him to stay around now because there are other options on the table. Well, it's all, the only way they can convince him is the trajectory, isn't isn't it? That there is a trajectory there now on that will get into the front, but that's the trajectory they've meant to be on going to the beginning of his return to the team. So, yeah, it's going to be very, very difficult. I'm The one saving grace McLaren has is that options might be limited for Alonso elsewhere in Formula 1 with a with a top team. We have to see how all that plays out, and I'm sure we'll be pushing, but it'll need that plus... Honda showing the progression is there because I don't think Alonso is going to be remotely interested in another season messing about wasting his time really so that that's that's what it hinges on if I was Fernando Alonso at this point in time and I had to make the decision I don't see how McLaren Honda can convince me that they can give me a title winning car in 2019 I just can't see what evidence they're going to provide him of that given what we've seen so far Exactly. That's the situation. I imagine Fernando Alonso, as we speak, is sat there scratching his head trying to work out what the best move for him would be. Well, there's plenty to look forward to in the Canadian Grand Prix then. It's going to be interesting to see how that Ferrari-Mercedes battle plays out and, of course, how Lance Stroll gets on in his first home Grand Prix. So thanks for joining us, Lawrence, and giving us the, the lowdown on that. So thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this slightly different podcast. It's been interesting to hear from the people behind this Williams Heritage Day, which has been absolutely fantastic. I'd urge anyone to go online and try and find some of the videos and the the pictures. There'll be a load of that on autosport.com for you to have a bit of a look at because it's been fantastic to be here. And I've not seen anybody here who looks like they're here under duress. All the drivers are delighted. It's just been a really, really, really nice day. So remember to check out Autosport magazine out every Thursday, autosport.com for news features on F1 and the whole world of motorsport. Subscribe to the podcast, which is free via iTunes and all manner of other podcast delivery applications. You can also find us on SoundCloud. And don't forget to come back next week to listen to another Autosport podcast where I'm sure we'll look back on a dramatic Canadian Grand Prix. 
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Feeling stuck in your current job? Looking for a career pivot? Are you a proven leader looking to step up? The University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business prepares students to meet challenges, solve problems, and obtain a profound understanding of how to operate in the modern economy. With MBA and MS programs offering flexible options to fit your lifestyle and goals. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more today at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired. Fearless. Unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.